How many people know what idiot lights are, also known as telltales? Idiot lights? Idiot lights are, are those things on the dashboard of your car that flash when something is wrong. They turn on. Now, they replaced gauges, which were much more specific and actually much more helpful if you paid attention to them. But the problem was is that people normally didn't pay attention to the gauges. It used to be that if your battery was discharging as opposed to charging, you could see it on a gauge, all right? And you could see it start to happen. You go, oh, my battery is going bad. And you would know way in advance to change your battery. Or if the temperature in your engine were going up incrementally. But now what happens is as the temperature reaches a certain point above normal, the ch check engine light comes on. If uh, maybe there's a problem with the, um, the, uh, the what, what, do they, what do they call that? The emission control stuff. You know, um, but uh, now they have all sorts of gauges for, for oil. So, you know, if the oil is slowly draining out of your engine and out of your oil pan and it's going to seize up and wreck your engine, there's this little, you know, oil can thing that shows up like that on, on your dashboard. And it wasn't there before, and now it's there, and you go, oh, the lights are coming on. Um, and uh, if I'm, I'm an idiot if I don't pay attention to, to that light. Um, there's also even now a tire pressure deal where, um, you know, it lets you know when you might have a nail in your tire or something. And that actually even has helped me. I, I couldn't believe that. How did they get gauges inside the wheels, inside the tires? Like, doesn't it spin around? How do they do that? But they do, see? And, uh, yeah, there's that one like that. So, so, that, so those are idiot lights. And, you know, I would say that um, in my life, I wish that I had the benefit of idiot life, idiot lights at, at various times other than just when I'm in my car. Because if you know me at all or know my story, you know that um, I haven't always made the best decisions. Um, I remember when I was a little kid, I grew up near, uh, near farmer's fields, um, a woods and a creek, great for young kids to go out and explore. Me and my buddies would go out to the woods and we would make these forts and we would have drills. There was Suicide Hill, you know. Suicide Hill was this extremely steep hill that went down toward the creek in the woods and it had like trees everywhere and, and, and if, if, if you were on your sled, you had to be really, really careful going down that thing. But it was a blast if you made it all the way down. Uh, if you were on your bicycle in the summertime, again, it was treacherous, but it was a blast because you picked up so much speed going on down toward the creek. Well, I never forget the time we came to Suicide Hill to test our young emerging manhood. And there were steps dug out of the hill. The Gray Sisters. Had their father helped them build a fort at the top of Suicide Hill. And to get up, they had carved steps. It, this, this was like a declaration of war. The Gray Sisters um, were these Amazon women back when we were in grade school. <laughs> who were, you know, 
They were, they were taller than all of us, stronger than all of us, but, you know, they were still girls. So we declared war on the Amazon Gray Sisters, which meant, you know, kind of staying on either side of the creek and throwing dirt claws at each other. Um, there were old cattails along the sides of the creek. I don't know if you've ever grown up along this, but these, if you pull them out, like they come out with a clot of dirt at the bottom and this long kind of spiny root that looks like a spear tip, and you can chuck that thing. Boom! You know, like it'll fly like a spear, <laughs> which we had plenty of those in our war with the Gray Sisters on either side of, you know, the hill, on either side of the creek. Well, we decided that we were going to storm their fort that their father had built. It was much better than anything we had. I don't know if we were going to try to steal it or what. So me and a couple other guys snuck around kind of behind enemy lines, relying on surprise. Lo and behold, we were the ones surprised. I was captured by the Gray Sisters. <laughs> And they were strong. And they, you know, my, I know, my buddies are flying away. I'm like, save yourselves. And, and they tied me to this tree under their fort with my hands behind my back. And I thought for sure, since they were girls, I could break free of those knots, which I quickly found out I could not. I was actually shocked but I could not get away. And to make matters worse, I had a terrible cold. And I remember feeling like I had to sneeze. And my nose is itching. And I sneezed. And there was like just this long stream of snot that just wouldn't come off. So embarrassing. The Amazon women are all laughing at me. I think finally either they untied me, their dad made them untie me, or one of my buddies came and untied me. I don't remember what happened. But, I mean, I'm wishing that before I made that fateful raid on the, on the, the Amazon fort that, that I'd had an, an idiot light that came on and said, check your brain. <laughs> like, like, you're not thinking correctly about these girls at all. They're bigger, they're stronger than you, faster, and they tie better knots. So um, I just wish I had that. Um, there was another time uh, when I was a youngster. Uh, I was probably in middle school. I was playing football, peewee football. Even though I was kind of tall and skinny and gangly, I, you know, I still played, and I enjoyed it. I'd gone and played for years. And, and my uncle taught at Ohio State University in the medical school, and he had bought us tickets to an Ohio State University football game, which was very, very exciting to go down to the Horseshoe Stadium. And so I'm there with my brothers and my sister and my dad, and, you know, we're going to this football game. And, and the way it used to be back then, the, the practice field was on the outskirts of the football field. And there was all these apparati, these, these apparatuses that would help the football players get tough, right? And so they had some that I kind of recognized. There were um, uh, 
these paddles. They were kind of like like uh, French doors, you know, when you walk into a house, except they had a spring tension on them with pads. And the idea is if you're a running back, you hold on to the ball and uh, you crouch down and you bust through those pads, kind of simulating tacklers trying to grab at you. And I thought, you know, even though I don't have my equipment on, I'll bet you if I get enough, enough of a head of steam, I can burst through those pads. And so... I, you know, without announcing to anybody what I was doing, I just took off as fast as I could go, not realizing that I was going in from the wrong direction. (laughs) The next thing I remember is looking up at a blue sky with a ring of adult faces saying, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you hurt? Can you move? I wish I had an idiot light. At the moment of decision to go through that football apparatus, but I didn't. You know, we have um, major idiot light moments as well as these kind of minor ones, don't we? I mean, aren't there times in our lives where Instead of just lying on the ground looking up at the sky, it's kind of like the spiritual wind gets knocked out of us, and you're, you're just knocked out cold for life for a while. And you're, you're lying on the ground looking up at the sky, wondering if God is really there, or if he is there, if he's really a caring, good God. And, and you wonder, I mean, is there something that could have been done beforehand? Is there some kind of a warning that could have happened? Uh, to stop you from maybe getting yourself in that situation? Because there's, there's these danger zones that are ahead of us in life. That rob us of our joy or, or steal our, our faith away. A crisis of belief. Today's Palm Sunday. And... It's always been a difficult holiday for me. Not because Jesus is not worthy of the praises that were heaped upon him that day. What what troubles me is the quick turnaround. That five days later, people are calling out for his execution. That's always bothered me. And I'm wondering, like, like how how come they didn't get it? Like, how come they didn't see what was ahead? could there have been any kind of a, of a warning that they were about to do a 180? Were the praises shallow? Were they not really meant? Or were they really meant, but then something happened? Some danger zone approach they weren't aware of. We're going to look at uh, some passages surrounding Palm Sunday and try and look and see if there was something that might have tipped them off. Was there a spiritual warning light that came on if they had been paying attention? So if you've got a Bible, you can open to John, the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 12. And uh, if not, it'll be on the wall over there to my right. John 12. The next day... 
the great crowd that had come for the festival, that's the Passover, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Now, just so you know, uh, Jesus had just got done raising Lazarus from the dead. I mean, he had been doing ministry for three years, feeding thousands and thousands of people on a couple different occasions, healing the sick, exercising demons, delivering people from demonic possession or oppression. Uh, He had been now raising people from the dead. So the Jesus frenzy is at an all-time high. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna is a Hebrew expression that means save. Like, save us. Maybe you're like me and and your favorite prayer is, help. It's kind of like that. Save. Hosanna, save me. Save us. Save the nation. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, they're quoting a psalm at this point, actually Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. They're quoting from their own scriptures. They're they're, they're starting to narrow the focus that Jesus is more than just a faith healer or a teacher. He's a prophet. Maybe he's the coming Messiah. And then they get really specific, and they say, Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Now, this is where Jesus actually comes in conjunction. There's some duplicity here, if that's the right word. He joins forces with the people who are shouting his praises, and he actually does something to fulfill a very specific messianic prophecy, which is from Zechariah chapter 9. And in Zechariah, basically, he's identifying that the future glorious king, the one who will put everything to rights, will come not on a great white horse, but on a lowly donkey's colt. And so Jesus, knowing this prophecy, evidently has one that just kind of appears, or he goes to get one. doesn't matter. He gets on it. He knows what he's doing at this point. Let's not make any mistake. Jesus knew who he was. He identified himself as the Messiah. He accepted worship from people. He said things like, when you've seen me, you've seen God. I and the Father are one. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. He doesn't say, I will show you the way, or I will tell you the truth, or help you find the life. He says, I am all those things. So Jesus is just acting consistently with everything he's done for the past three years, saying, I am the guy. This makes people crazy. Crazy with joy. Because Jesus is now accepting their praises and participating in this triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Verse 16. 
At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd was, that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone out after him. They're being prophetic. They probably didn't even know it. Yes, the whole world is going out after him. And if you look at the very next chapter in the Gospel of John, you have people from Greece who are looking for Jesus because they've heard about him. So Jesus is on the brink of being recognized as the Messiah, and he accepts the praises of the people. And, and, and so whether they were legitimate praises or whether they were shallow praises of a fad, kind of a celebrity thing, it doesn't matter. Jesus at one point says, you know what, even if these people are shut up, the stones, the rocks themselves are going to cry out because I really am this guy. He accepts their praises. But there's more. The Apostle John probably gives us the most in terms of numbers of words about the Palm Sunday episode, but Luke also writes about it. But let me, let me talk about, about this, about this seeing Jesus as the Messiah. What kind of things come out of seeing Jesus as a Messiah? I think when you see Jesus as Lord, things change in your life. Good things happen in your life. You, you, you have a singularity of purpose. You find out that you're made for something. You're part of God's plan. Because life has meaning. When you come to Jesus, when you acknowledge him as Lord and Savior, right and wrong becomes much more clear than it was before you acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior because you pay attention to the kinds of things he said. You have a love for the truth, especially the truth found in the Word of God. Truth about faith, truth about doctrine. These kind of things become important to you. These are, there's some wonderful things that happen when you acknowledge Jesus as Lord and you praise him as such. You, you fall in love with his body, the church, even though it's so imperfect. It's so difficult to love the church because you expect so much more than what you actually get. I don't know how many of you have been hurt by Christians, but I expect most of you. And, you know, because maybe rightly you expected more out of the Christians than you did out of other people. But you still, you, you kind of live in this tension of loving the church and being grateful for the church and then being disappointed by the church and forgiving the church and coming back and helping out and then you get hurt again and then, you know, they do something nice for you and you're all crazy love and the next thing you do they just totally blow it and you know it's but at least you're you're in the game you know what i'm saying you're in the game where before you just kind of took three steps back and just condemned the church as a bunch of hypocrites 
That's what happens when you accept Jesus Christ as Lord, when you acknowledge him and praise him as such. And you're concerned about how you treat people. Really. Because you know the golden rule that Jesus says to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And as a matter of fact, he says, I want you to love others the way that I have loved you, which also means you've got to love your enemies, which is really, really hard, but which is the mark of true Christians. They love their enemies. Or at least they try to love their enemies. All right, but things go bad. And I'm wondering, okay, all these wonderful things are happening Could they have had a warning? Let's go to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 19. He writes about this triumphal entry as well, starting in verse 37. When he, Jesus, came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you... Even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. And I'm I'm wondering, how many people that day noticed that Jesus was crying? He had just got done with the biggest ticker tape parade Jerusalem had seen in a long time. And he winds up crying. Now, obviously, someone that Luke interviewed noticed. Now, Luke wasn't there. He was actually a Greek physician who followed the Apostle Paul around, part of the early church. He wrote the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and also the Acts of the Apostles or the Acts of the Holy Spirit, whatever you want to call that book. And he was kind of a historian on the side, did a lot of interviewing of people. We think probably he interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus, quite a bit, because he tells us more about that whole thing than anybody else, about what she would know. So Luke obviously interviewed somebody or a number of people who noticed this thing that Jesus cried after the triumphal entry, people are going, Yay, Hosanna, blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, they're doing the whole Godspell thing, Jesus Christ superstar thing. They're dancing around. And he's crying. That's got to be like a light on a dashboard. It flashes on and says, people, stop. Check it out. Things aren't right here. Something is different on the horizon 
You're approaching the danger zone. You're all happy, happy, joy, joy. But not for long. The idiot light had just come on, but nobody paid attention. Because within the short span of five days, people will have gone from praising Jesus as the Messiah to calling out for his execution. And not just any old execution, but execution in the worst way that Rome could deal out. If you're like me, when you read the Bible, you kind of place yourself in the story. And and I wonder, if you're like me, could I ever do this? Could I ever praise Jesus one day, and then a couple days later? I think the answer is yes. How many people have had the experience of getting a note from your girlfriend that she loved you truly three days ago? On the fourth day, all of a sudden, you find out you're breaking up over Facebook. It happens because we're like that. And my question is, Even in that kind of a scenario, weren't there some lights that came on? If you've been paying attention? If we're not close enough to Jesus to gauge whether or not he's happy or sad, I'm hoping there's some idiot lights that might come on. I've been doing the scum of the earth thing for a dozen years now. And I've watched some young people come in, get all excited about following Jesus, start to grow in their faith, and then several years later, only to have stopped following Christ, to not plug into this or any other faith community and to go nowhere spiritually. The closest thing they get to worship is singing along with the songs of their favorite band at a concert. The closest they get to being filled with the Spirit is tipping a few back at the High Dive or the Larimer Lounge or the Walnut Room. Their theology is a smorgasbord of conflicting beliefs. They're not sure what is right or what is wrong anymore. They slowly begin to treat their friends in selfish ways, I know, because the friends come and complain to me. And they hate their enemies and have no remorse about that. What are some of the warning signals? that they may have ignored. Here are some of the 
scum of the earth church idiot lights. All right? Here's just a few that I've come up with. These are from experience. One is the check your morality light. If the check your morality light comes on, it's important. What that means is, if you begin acting in ways that you would never have acted before because of your trust or your faith or your love or your, of Jesus, your fear of God, whatever, you need to stop. You need to check things out. You need to see what's going on. Because here's the weird thing, is I've seen people's morality dictate their theology. You would think, no, 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 Mike, that's wrong. It's the other way around. It's your theology dictates your morality. What you believe dictates how you act. Uh-uh. Because if there's things you want to do that you know Jesus doesn't agree with, you will find a way to make Jesus say it's okay. You will. <laughs> I mean, do I get specific or not? Or do you have things popping up in your head? And then you got to check your theology. Because sometimes your life is squeaky clean. You're doing great. But all of a sudden, you're not sure you believe all the old tales are true. Some people question the very divinity of Christ, the virgin birth. How could that really happen? I think Jesus was just a good moral teacher. He wasn't God. In fact, I'm, I'm not even sure if, if, if when he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me, I'm not even sure if he actually said that or if that's just what the writers wanted him to say. And they threw that in there. There's all sorts of theological points that maybe you hold dear, that you begin to stray from. Now, don't get me wrong. I think Christianity is a religion that is strong enough to handle the truth, because it is the truth. I'm not saying that you've got to blindly follow the theology of your church. I think you should question as much as you want to. I mean, we have... Small group leaders, we've got seminary profs here. We've got, you know, people on pastoral staff. We've got people who've been in the mission field here. Feel free to ask those kinds of questions of anybody. Please do. Get your answers. I'm not afraid of the truth. I'm not afraid of your doubts. If you know your Bible, you will know that John the Baptist the prophet that Jesus called the greatest born among everybody, even he had his doubts. He's the guy who announced Jesus' ministry, and then at the end of John the Baptist's life, he's wondering, are, are you really the guy? Are you the Messiah? Because, you know, 
I'm stuck in this prison. My life's kind of gone down the drain. And I'm, I'm just wondering, really, are you the guy that wants to come? Because this is not the way I thought things would go down. If John the Baptist could have doubts, you could have doubts. And Jesus addressed the doubts of John the Baptist. He wasn't afraid of John's questions. So, check your theology light. It comes on, stop. Get some answers. Research it. Look at commentaries. Read the Bible. You know, read good books. Not bad books, but good books. But if you have some faulty theology that's come your way, check it out. Check the isolation light. It's amazing how when people begin to break down, they start to pull away from everybody else they know. They pull away from fellowship. Check that out. Stop. If you find yourself, no, I don't really want to be with you know any of my Christian friends. I don't really want to go to worship. I don't, I don't feel like um, going to Bible study or you know. I really, a mission trip is so expensive. I really, you know, it'd be easier not to try and uh, you know work more and raise the money. I mean, check your if the isolate the check isolation light comes on. Stop. Check your. Uh, your mentor light. If people that you trust and have trusted for a long time come up to you and start asking you questions like, are, are, you, are you okay? I've been watching you and I've watched your life and I'm watching who you're hanging around and, and I'm wondering, um, how are you doing with the Lord? Is that relationship okay? Are, are you, are, are, you know, when, when people start asking you questions, people that you've historically trusted, Stop. Stop. Check it out. Maybe the spiritual drudgery light comes on. You know, you don't want to read the Bible because it's boring. You would rather go outside during worship. You'd rather... Whatever. You just get bored. Stop. Check it out. Danger could be ahead. Check your spare time light. Check your spare time light. How are you spending your time? How are you spending your time? Healthy ways? Unhealthy ways? And then there's the check your heart light. Just stop. Spend some time alone with the Lord. Go off into the mountains. Meditate. Pray. Be in silence. Solitude. Just check it out. What's going on in there? How am I really feeling? Something's not right. Pinpoint it. In any case... As you're driving down the road of life, keep looking at Jesus. Because really, isn't it the best way to look at Jesus? Looking at Jesus is more like a gauge and less like an idiot light. 
if you keep your eyes focused on Him. If the people on Palm Sunday had kept their eyes focused on Jesus, they would have known something was coming. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus. And one of the best ways that I know, honestly, to keep your eyes focused on Jesus is in the communion with him that he instituted that last night that he had his dinner with his friends. Matthew records it like this, and he was there. Matthew 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Then the Apostle Paul adds in 1 Corinthians 11, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is a way to keep your eyes focused on Jesus, the gauge of our spirituality. One way is through communion. It's a physical act that we do. I was in morning church. There was a girl I've known for years. She came to Christ years ago here at SCUM. And she wasn't getting up to take communion. And I said, come on, let's go. No, I've only taken communion twice in my whole life. Well, once in my, once in my life. I go, when was that? She goes, when I got baptized. I went, you belong to Jesus. He gave you this to remember him by. Remember what he has done. Keep your eyes focused on him. He is the author, the perfecter of our faith. I'll say he's the gauge of our faith as well. So tonight, I'd like you to come and take communion with us. We'll have a couple stations, uh, one down here, one up here. Um, the way we do it at Scum is we, we tear off a piece of the bread, you dip it in the cup, and then you, you eat it. Right then, you go back to your seat, you say a prayer, focus on Jesus, and ask him, how am I doing, Jesus? How am I doing? What's up ahead? Thank you. Thank you for dying for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would make us wise, that we would go through life at least paying attention to the warning lights when they come on, those telltale lights that say there's danger up ahead. But Lord, help keep us focused on Jesus Christ, our Savior, for now and forever. It's in his name we pray. Amen.